back to First uh, Kings chapter 12, page 351 in the church Bibles. Well, this passage really does have everything in it, doesn't it? Uh, we've got names that are going to keep us on our toes. Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Abijah, Ahijah. We've got um, a, young, a group of young men giving their friend bad advice. Not the last time that this will happen in the history of the world. We've got allusions to the Exodus story, which we'll come back to shortly. We've got a mysterious, unnamed man of God who's been commanded by the word of the Lord not to eat bread or to drink water. Why is he on this no-carb diet, we wonder? We've got this curious old prophet, a kind of Jekyll and Hyde character. One minute he's lying to the man of God, telling him he is allowed bread and water. And then the next, after the man has eaten the bread and drank the water, the prophet tells him he's defied the word of the Lord that he's not done as the Lord commanded. And then he sends this man of God off to be killed. Then there's the animals, golden calves, birds, dogs, donkeys, dung of some description. And if that's not enough, a lion. A lion that mauls and kills the man of God. But as chapter 13 verse 28 tells us, does not eat him. This is a lion with a very delicate palate. I hope that as we read these events that they dispel the myth that the Bible is simply a boring rule book full of do's and don'ts. This is a dramatic story, a piece of Old Testament narrative. There are people and places and a storyline, a true story of Israel's history. This is a history marked by division, divided kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south, and divided hearts, the divided hearts of many, many kings. Last March, we finished up at 1 Kings chapter 11, and at that point, it was clear that the kingdom of Israel would continue with Rehoboam reigning in Solomon's place. King Rehoboam was the son of Solomon, the grandson of David, and therefore the rightful heir to Israel's throne. But King Solomon was a man with a divided heart, who according to chapter 11, verse 6, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord completely. And tonight, as we look at this amazing passage of Scripture, we're going to look closely at some of the characters involved to see what their divided hearts do. The story moves back and forth from places and people, and that's what we're going to do tonight as we look at these three chapters. I've got three points this evening, uh, and the first one is this. Divided hearts reject God's word. Divided hearts reject God's word. Look with me down at chapter 12, verse 1, and notice that Rehoboam has traveled to a place called Shechem to be crowned king. He had support back in Jerusalem, but to be able to govern the whole kingdom, he needed the wider support of the other tribes of Israel. But when he gets there, he is immediately challenged by Jeroboam. The passage says, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. 
Jeroboam starts off a bit like Moses. In the same way that Moses pleaded with Pharaoh on behalf of the people, so Jeroboam pleads with Rehoboam on behalf of the people. But though he starts off like Moses, Jeroboam ends up being more like Moses' brother Aaron, as we'll see shortly. But let's stick with Rehoboam for now. In what way does Rehoboam reject God's word in this episode? Well, as he attempts to reach a decision about how to treat the people, he takes advice from two different groups, the elders of Israel and a group of young men. Now, the elders of Israel had been uh, Solomon's advisors, and yet Rehoboam rejects uh, their advice. Instead, he accepts the advice of the young men. Now, the advice of the elders was really wise. They said, if today you'll be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. This was wise advice. The king was the ruler and the defender and the provider for his people. He was responsible for their care. Servant leadership is a biblical principle. And this is what the elders were recommending. And so by rejecting their advice, Rehoboam rejected the word of God. Now, Jeroboam is no better. Back in chapter 11, um, which I'm sure you can all remember from last March, uh, we met a prophet called Ahijah. Now, a prophet's job is to speak God's word on God's behalf. And Ahijah promised that Jeroboam would be massively blessed in three ways. That he would rule over all that his heart desired that he would be the king over Israel, and that he would have a dynasty as enduring as the one the Lord built for David. Incredible. But God's word contained a condition. Jeroboam would only get all of this if he did whatever the Lord commanded and walked in obedience to the Lord and did what was right in the Lord's eyes by obeying the Lord's commands. But Jeroboam did nothing of the sort. We'll look at the detail of what Jeroboam does in a moment, but for now, we can say that he completely rejects the word of God. We know this because of God's judgment on Jeroboam when the prophet Ahijah reappears in chapter 14, verse 8. Ahijah says that Jeroboam had not been like the Lord's servant David, who kept his commands and followed him with all his heart, doing only what was right in his eyes. Ahijah then goes on to say that by failing to keep God's commands, Jeroboam was turning his back on God. You see, to reject God's word is to reject God himself. And in rejecting God and God's word, Jeroboam commits something called apostasy. This is a word which means to abandon belief in God. It's not the same as atheism, which describes people who don't believe in God, or agnosticism, which uh, I guess describes people who don't know what they believe exactly. Apostasy describes a situation where someone did believe in God, but has abandoned that belief. Now, in the case of Jeroboam, this apostasy is uh, particularly shocking, given the promised blessing that Ahijah prophesied about in chapter 11. Jeroboam despises God's goodness, and he rejects God's word. 
Jeroboam basically does the exact opposite to what the people who the Apostle Paul writes to in the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul thanks God for the way the Thessalonians have turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. Now, unlike them, Jeroboam turns away from God to worship false, dead idols. Rehoboam is just as bad as Jeroboam. Now, the third person to reject God's word is the man of God uh, that we see in chapter 13. He actually starts off very well. Look down with me at uh, chapter 13, verse 1 to 2. He, uh, in this little section, bravely confronts King Jeroboam over his sin. But as you can imagine, Jeroboam is not happy about that. So he tries to seize the man of God, but ends up with a shriveled hand instead. Jeroboam then tries another tactic. In trying, in trying, sorry, instead of trying to sentence the man of God to death, he tries to serve him dinner. But the man of God refuses because he was commanded by the word of the Lord not to eat or drink bread or water or to return by the road that he came from. We don't know for sure why he was given this command uh, by the word of the Lord. Maybe it was to show that the royal tribe of Judah wasn't to have fellowship with the northern kingdom and all its sinful idol worship. What is clear, however, is that to begin with, the man of God obeys the word of God. If we were doing a highlights video of the man of God's best moments, we would stop the footage right here because it's all downhill after that. Things take a turn for the worse when the old prophet lies to him and says, uh, an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. In other words, the old prophet persuades the man of God to do the exact thing that he was told not to do. The man of God could have detected the prophet's lie by measuring it against the command he'd been given. But instead he accepts the lie and rejects the word of God. The word of God wasn't sufficient for him. Now, King David, uh, the man that Ahijah describes as the Lord's servant, said this about God's word. In Psalm 19, David describes scripture as perfect, as trustworthy, as right, as radiant, as firm, as righteous, as more precious than pure gold and more sweet than honey. In the New Testament, we hear of God's word being described as, God's, uh, as God breathed. God's word is totally sufficient. Yet there's always the temptation to take advice from the wrong places rather than to do what is so plain and so clear in God's word. As you think about Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the man of God, who would you say you're most like? In what ways are you rejecting God's word just now? Are you like Jeroboam, living in total disobedience to God's word? Despite knowing what God's word says, are you, in a sense, committing apostasy? 
Have you abandoned belief in God's word, but keep coming to church so that no one gets on your back? Despite knowing what God's word says about purity and pride and gossip and greed, are you rejecting God's word by the way that you live? despite all the many blessings that come with following God's ways, are you just defiantly living your own way? Or are you like Rehoboam, taking advice from all the wrong places? You listen to what the Bible has to say, but it's just one of a number of voices you tune into, along with the advice of your friends, the culture, and the media. For you, it's just all one big melting pot. You'd never specifically say you reject God's word, but in practice and in reality, you do. Or are you like the man of God who got sidetracked by false prophecy? Are you someone who gets excited, tempted, or intrigued when people talk about a new word from God, a new word of knowledge, not satisfied with the revealed word of God given in scripture. Well, we've seen that if you reject God's word, then you reject God himself, and you you don't want to do that. Come with me to chapter 14. Look with me at the gruesome judgment that we had read out to us that is given to Jeroboam. Hopefully, uh, this is all the evidence you need of the danger of rejecting God's word. See the death the burning, the mourning, the arousal of God's anger, the striking of Israel, the handing over of Israel. They all serve as a stark warning that to reject God's word is to reject God, and to reject God will lead to the ultimate rejection, eternal separation from him, and eternal punishment in hell. This is a sober warning indeed, that divided hearts reject God's word, and what follows is the judgment of God. Well, as well as rejecting God's word, the second thing that this passage shows us is that divided hearts make false gods. Divided hearts make false gods. We see this firstly in the life of Jeroboam. Look with me. Uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 28 to 33. If we can just move the next slide on. Thanks. Here we see Jeroboam creating a new religion. And just look how heavily involved he is with this. Every aspect, if you go through it, chapter 12, 25 to 33, every aspect of this new religion is closely connected to him. He's the one who made golden calves, repeating Aaron's sin and breaking the second of the Ten Commandments. He's the one who deceitfully decides it's too much for the people to go to Jerusalem to worship. He's the one who lies and says the golden calves are gods who rescued them from their slavery and oppression in Egypt. In fact, he even uses Aaron's exact words to say what these calves were uh, were supposed to have done. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. This is so tragic. 
to read him speaking like this. He is the one who built shrines on high places, even though in Deuteronomy, Moses was specifically forbidden to use these sites to worship the Lord. And he's the one who appoints priests from all sorts of people, even though God specifically chose the tribe of Levi to be his priests because they were obedient to him after the last golden calf incident in the book of Exodus. Jeroboam is up to his neck in false worship. And you would think that when the man of God cries out against Jeroboam and makes his hand shrivel, that that would be enough for him to change his ways. And yet, strangely, Jeroboam still doesn't grasp the problem of his idolatry. Maybe grasp is not the best word to use for a man with a shriveled hand. But what I mean is, he doesn't appreciate the extent of his idolatry. You see, Jeroboam didn't change his evil ways. He appointed more non-Levite high priests for the high places. And then we get this damning verdict on him at the end of chapter 13. Look with me. Verse 34, this was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. And then again in chapter 14, we read of Jeroboam, you have done more evil than all who lived before you. You've made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. And the consequences for Israel are absolutely disastrous. Chapter 14 tells us that the Lord will raise up a king who will cut off the family of Jeroboam and that Israel will be uprooted and scattered from the good land that God gave them. Why? It all goes back to the sins that Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel herself to commit. Jeroboam's divided heart caused him to make false gods and it has disastrous consequences for him and the people he ruled. Yet again, Rehoboam is no better. In fact, he does just the same. He makes false idols in the southern kingdom of Judah. Flick back to chapter 14, verse 22, and we'll see again what he does. Chapter 14, verse 22. Under his kingship, Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. More irony here, the nations that Judah had replaced, they end up copying. These were detestable things that they were doing. They were idolatrous. Jeroboam and Rehoboam were exactly the same in this way. They led the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom into idolatry, and they were both personally, collect, personally connected, personally responsible. What I want you to notice, though, is that they never stop worshipping. They just stop worshipping the Lord God. The truth is that we all worship something, and we're all worshipping there is no safe place. There is no neutral position when it comes to worship. There's no equivalent of Switzerland when it comes to worship. We are all worshipers. We are all worshiping something, and it's either false worship or true worship. 
false worship of a false God or true worship of a living God. And the problem with false gods, as this passage shows us, is that God will judge such idolatry. And as this passage also shows, even those who claim to be God's people will not be spared. So how do we diagnose this problem today? I don't imagine anyone's got a golden calf in their garden. But how can we tell if we have a divided heart that is making false gods? Well, let me give you one suggestion. In the New Testament, in Matthew 12, Jesus says that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Let me say that again. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So what you speak about shows what's in your heart. What you speak about shows whether your heart is divided. If you have a divided heart, what you speak about will reveal what your false idols are. Let's think about some, some real examples. Are you someone who is constantly comparing themselves to other people? Are you someone who, when you talk, you're really just fishing for compliments? Are you someone who can turn any conversation into a conversation about you? Are you someone who doesn't come to a group like young adults or growth group or rooted because it's not done exactly how you want it to happen? Do you avoid church at prayer because you'd like it done differently or not done at all? If you answered yes to any of these questions, maybe your idol is yourself. For you, it's about your plans, your agenda, your way of doing things, your dislikes and likes. Are you someone who's always talking about stuff, money, clothes, gadgets, houses, cars, size of your latest TV? We learned this morning that you cannot serve two masters. You will end up loving one and hating the other. Maybe your idolatry is based around money and possessions. Now, we don't just speak with our words in our, uh, though. We, we, we speak with, uh, with our actions too. Uh, maybe you're someone whose commitment to church and your friends reduces when you start a new relationship. Maybe relationships are your idol. Maybe you're someone who's so busy with work or study uh, that you're neglecting your relationship with God or your family in church. Maybe your idol is work or study. I could go on and on. How we approach travel and children and ministry, retirement, sex, food, drink, the list could go on. You see, our hearts are little idol factories and there is no way, no end of the ways that we can take things that are good and turn them into false gods. And we can also idolize things that are expli explicitly off limits like Jeroboam and the golden calves. Don't be like Jeroboam, who will be remembered for all history as someone who did not change his evil ways. Change your evil ways. Stop 
tolerating your false gods. Stop worshiping them. Tear them down. This passage paints a depressing picture of what divided hearts do, of how Jeroboam and Rehoboam fell short, of how they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as we chart the story of kings in Judah, kings of Judah and Israel, we're going to see that it gets much, much worse. The glory days of Israel are long gone. The division has taken place. The northern kingdom will lapse further into idolatry. And much of the, the southern kingdom's story is really similar, apart from a few high points where there's some relatively good kings who come on the scene. But the exile in Babylon is looming. But it would be wrong to just approach this passage and indeed the whole of Kings uh, as simply a story about human wickedness and stupidity. It would be a big mistake to think the book of Kings just records the history of human kings. That would be a big mistake. You see, the book of Kings also records what God is doing in Judah and Israel. You see, Kings is not just historical, it's theological. And the theology of the book teaches that God's plans cannot be thwarted even by the most wicked of human beings. You see, there's one final thing that divided hearts do in this passage, and it's this. Divided hearts fulfill God's plans. That might sound a bit strange, but divided hearts really do fulfill God's plans. Let me show you what I mean from the passage. Look uh, quickly back to 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 15. And let's read what happens after Jeroboam rejects the elders' advice. This is what 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 15 says. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. You probably know this, but Proverbs 21 says that the king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever it pleases. And this proverb describes exactly what is happening with Jeroboam. Even though, humanly speaking, the split in the kingdom was caused by people rejecting God's word and making false gods, the author of Kings teaches us that from another angle, this all happened to fulfill God's plans. Rehoboam is entirely responsible for his actions, which, uh, humanly speaking, seem to threaten God's plans. And yet, while he does great damage, ultimately, the outcome of God's people is in God's hands. Let's quickly look at the example of the man of God as well. On the one hand, we commend the man of God for not being intimidated by Jeroboam, uh, but in the end, he succumbed to the old prophet's lie and ended up being killed. Yet when the old prophet comes to his senses, look what he says about the man of God in chapter 13, verse 32. Chapter 13, verse 32 says, the message he declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines and the high places in the towns of Samaria will certainly come true. The divided heart of the man of God cannot alter God's plans. The, the, me the message that he declared is going to come true. And this is a, a big theme that runs right through First and Second Kings. God's word is powerful. His plans will be fulfilled. And incredibly, this even happens with uh, people who have got divided hearts. It's quite amazing, really, to sit back and look at it from our perspective. Wicked men will not win. God will not fail. 
Now, that is not an encouragement to live with a divided heart. I'm not saying reject God's word and make false gods because God's plans will still be fulfilled. That would be a stupid understanding uh, of this passage. No, scripture is abundantly clear on this. Isaiah 66 says, these are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Though the call tonight is not to reject God's word, but to tremble at it. And to tremble at the God who uses even the sinfulness of men to achieve his purposes. Behind these divided hearts, there was a God working whose heart was undivided. He would fulfill his plans and save a people to himself. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian uh, here tonight, let me, let me speak to you personally for a moment. There was a moment in history when God used the divided hearts of men to fulfill his plans in the most amazing way. It happened a little over 2,000 years ago uh, on a cross when Jesus died for sinners. Acts chapter 22, verse 23, shows us precisely how divided hearts would fulfill the plan of God to deal with our sin. Acts 2.23 says this, This man, that is Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. I hope you can grasp what is being said in that passage. Wicked men put Jesus on the cross, but that was fulfilling God's plan to save us. Jesus took our judgment on the cross, rose from the dead, and opened the way of salvation to everyone who will repent and believe in him. King Rehoboam wanted to make the yoke heavy on the people. We read that earlier, to increase their burdens. But Jesus Christ, King Jesus, does the exact opposite. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Our greatest burden is our sin, but the message of the cross is that God is merciful to sinners. He forgives people who once rejected his word and who once made false gods for themselves. Our passage tonight points us towards the need for a better king and a better prophet, one who would unite a people to himself rather than to divide, one who would reign wisely. This we have in the person of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the one who never had a divided heart, the one who always did the will of the Father. We're going to have people after the service here who'd love to talk to you more about what it means to put his, uh, your trust in him. And I'd be very happy to do that as well. Let me say finally to those of you who would say that you are a Christian, uh, let me say first and foremost, I'm not a prophet. Uh, I, I don't claim to be a prophet, but I want to warn you in the same way that the man of God warned Jeroboam. Don't be like Jeroboam, who did not change his evil ways. You see, this sin of apostasy, of abandoning belief in Jesus Christ, is very real. It's a subtle process. It often happens over a long period of time. I think the songwriter is spot on when he says, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray. And thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. Christian brother and sister, I would urge you and plead with you tonight not to be rejecting God's word and instead to cherish it 
and to obey it. Tear down the false idols that you have in your life. If there are things that used to be black and white to you in God's word about how to live that have become gray areas, things you know that are sinful, but you're toying with them, please, I plead with you, would you put them to death? Let the fate of Jeroboam in 1 Kings serve as a warning as to what will happen if you don't. Let us obey the word of God and be assured of our place in Christ's coming kingdom. And in the meantime, enjoy him and worship him, not with divided hearts, but with our whole hearts. Let's pray.